And then on Friday, I decided to completely change what we are preaching, and so we'll preach through something totally different. We'll preach from Jeremiah 29 instead. Let me explain how that sort of happened. On Friday morning, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I could not go back to sleep. And so that is very unusual for me because I am lights out. I sleep like a baby. I never wake up. And so, but Friday, I just woke up, and I had a million thoughts racing through my mind at what felt like a million miles an hour. I sat up in bed, and Shainu is a very light sleeper. If you breathe heavy, she wakes up. And so she woke up, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, nothing, nothing. You can go back to sleep. She pressed again and asked me what's wrong, and so I began to tell her that I was just burdened with so many thoughts in thinking about our church, and, and I could not go to sleep. And so I, I began to think, and, and I couldn't fall back asleep. And, and, and what I have to tell you is, along this journey of church planting, over these last three and four years since we've moved down here and partnered with you in, in starting this new church, every now and then, I'll get into these modes where I, I feel like I'm beginning to coast. Everything is up and running. Everything is going fine. The bills are being paid. And so it, it slowly you drift into coasting and, and you sort of drift into maintenance mode. I, I picture my heart like a wooden plank at sea, sort of slowly drifting without even knowing it into a comfort zone, into a maintenance mode. And every now and then when I get to that place, God in His grace jolts me with panic and jolts me in such a way that produces in me this desperate need again for God and for work and, and drives me again to prayer. Friday was one of those moments where He, in His kindness to me, jolted me again and put in me this, this panic, this desperate need for God, this desperate need for God to work. On the surface, I think this jolt, this panic was because this past month, neither our attendance nor our giving has been all that great. And so I'm up at night thinking about that. I think about, shouldn't we be growing? Why does it feel then like we're shrinking? Isn't the gospel of Jesus attractive that it should draw men from everywhere and people from all over the city? Why would we be shrinking rather than growing? And so then I begin to think, are we doing everything that we can? Are we doing everything that we should? Are our songs too short? Are our sermons too long? Please do not answer that one, right? <laughs> are we doing all that we should? Are we doing all that we can? Is, is something going on in us? And then I add to that and begin to think that because of this season and just over this summer, with graduations and different callings and relocation, we're going to lose more people, key people, people that we have spent years loving and investing in who love us and are dear to us and will shrink again. And, and these multitude of thoughts woke me up in the middle of the night and kept me up. But then as I began to think about it, I think even that is just sort of a surface layer of the many thoughts that were filling my mind. Because I think deeper, at, at one layer beneath all those superficial thoughts, I think the deep fear and the deeper issue is this. It's, Lord, have we begun to coast a little bit? Have we begun to sort of kick up our feet and relax a little bit? rather than getting ready to charge the next hill in the life of our church. And, and Lord, what is that next hill that we are supposed to charge? And then the question is like, are lives still being changed here? Are people who don't know Jesus coming to know Jesus here? Are people who do know Jesus telling people who don't know Jesus about Jesus 
here? Are we on mission? Or are we like a wooden plank, sort of drifting at sea, sort of coasting away from mission? I, I want you to know it is very easy for a church like ours to begin to drift. We have a space now. Bills are being paid each week. No matter what, seven days from now, there's going to be another service for people to attend. These things are up and running. It's easy for us to drift. I want to read you a quote from a pastor named Mark Driscoll. I, I think it'll be helpful for you to consider and hear the danger that is upon us. Here's what he says. He says, comfort zone is the place that a church falls into once they have learned how to survive. This point normally comes between two and five years into a church plant, which, by the way, is exactly where we are. Depending on its size and its giving, with between 60 and 80% of churches in America either plateaued or declining in membership and or attendance, this is also the state of most American churches. In the comfort zone phase, there is no longer an immediate visible crisis. The bills are paid. Most of the big jobs are being done by someone Leaders are officially in place, such as elders or deacons, and the people have generally grown to know and love one another in the church. At this point, the propensity is for the church to settle in, accept their size, and slip into a mode of maintenance. If they keep doing what they are doing, they know that they will stay at about the same place where they are, which is fine with many of the people of the church. At some point, people will move away, others will get bored, and the church will begin a cycle of decline. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm immediately gripped with the thought of, is that us? Does that describe who we are or where we are heading? And so suddenly panic begins to fill my heart. Do you feel that? So like I said, I'm, I'm sitting up in bed and a million thoughts are racing through my mind. And in that moment, I feel this strong urge and sense to pray. And so I tell that much to Shainu, and Shainu tells me in the middle of the night that I can go to the living room and pray, and that is literally the last thing I wanted to hear. So I really wanted to be like, Shainu, you should have said to me, go back to sleep, everything will be okay, That's, don't worry about it, we'll talk about it in the morning. Don't you, aren't you glad for wives who tell you what you ought to hear rather than what you want to hear? And so she told me, you should get up, and you should go to the living room, and you should pray. And so I tried to go back to sleep, but I could not. And, and so I, I, I was eventually drawn to the living room. And, and we've talked about this even as we've talked about prayer, that we pray so little and we're so poor at prayer that when the Holy Spirit actually prompts us to pray, we ought to obey those urges because we are so poor at prayer. So when the Spirit can overcome our grogginess and weakness and, and lack of prayer and actually move us to prayer, we ought to quickly submit to those urges. And so thankfully, the Spirit continued to stir and prompt and prod me until he moved me into the living room. And so now I'm sitting in the dark trying to pray. And I have to tell you, many of the things that we have preached over these past few weeks have been so helpful to me. Like everything else at the church plant, I have been the one who's been most helped by everything that we're doing. And so many of the things that we've talked about instructed my own heart. I'm sitting there in the dark and I'm telling the Lord, Lord, it is early. I'm groggy and disoriented and my mind is here and there. You've got to help. And immediately the Spirit reminded me of what we talked about here. That when we pray, we're not alone. But that the Spirit and the Son and the Father are with us and aid us and help us in prayer. And so in that moment, I'm reminded 
the Spirit's at work. I know He's at work because He already prompted me to pray. And He will help me. And, and Jesus is even now interceding for me at the Father and is ready to carry me and my petitions to God. And the Father who sent the Son and the Spirit is ready to receive me. And so the triune God is involved in this moment and is aiding me and helping me in prayer. At that moment as I'm sitting there, I also began to think what I need to do is work. What I need to do is go back into the room, grab the laptop, and start doing work. If what I'm worried about is the shrinking of the church, and if we're still on mission, well, those things are not going to fix itself. Well, I ought to get to work. And so I began to think that I need to get some things started and crank out some thoughts. And, and again, I'm reminded of what we preached through together, of the story of Mary and Martha, and, and how in that moment I don't need to be anxious with much serving but rather need to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did. And so the Spirit instructed me and, and helped me. And so by His help and through His grace, the Lord led me to a very sweet time of prayer, an extended and good time of prayer. And coming out of that time of prayer, I think one of the things that the Spirit put on my heart was to change what we were talking about today. And so... I, I thought that's what we ought to do. Instead of preaching on James 5, a, a text that hopefully we'll come back to in some other day, we'll, we'll look today at Jeremiah chapter 29, the passage that Binu read for us. And hopefully we'll see if this is a train wreck or helpful. As I started typing all this out on Friday, which is much later than I usually do, and then we'll see if this is the prompting of the spirit or lack of sleep. Okay? Let's pray for a moment, and then we'll consider Jeremiah 29 together. Our God, we do give you thanks, and we pray now that the Holy Spirit would sent, be sent to us generously, liberally, so that we might hear and heed your word. We pray that you would bring, bring correction and conviction to our hearts, instruction, rebuke, admonishment. You know what we need, and be faithful to do it through your word. We pray that you would align us closer with Christ, make us more dependent on him, make us more conformed to him, that all that we do from this place onwards, this time onwards, would be for his glory. Change our church as needed, and help us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read for us again Jeremiah 29. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. I hope this morning that this text of scripture reminds us again of the mission that God has called us to and the city that God has called us to and to participate with him in this work, in this mission, in this city through the work of prayer. I, I want to bring your attention to the context of this passage, the background, so that I'm not just dropping you in Jeremiah 29 but giving you sort of the lay of the land so that you know what passage you're looking at. In this book, the prophet Jeremiah, prophet of God, is writing to the people of Israel except the people of Israel are not where they always were, which is in the land of Israel, the land that God had promised them and prepared for them and put them in. 
They are instead in exile in a foreign land, in a foreign city, in an uncomfortable city, in a hostile environment, in a place they don't want to be. What's happened here is that the city of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, has come and swept down into Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, and carried out the people of Israel, and taken them with them as captives and prisoners back to Babylon. And so now here are the people of Israel, the citizens of God's city, Jerusalem, who have been carried out into exile into a foreign city. And now they're living as exiles in Babylon. This is a foreign city. It's a hostile city. It's not a pleasant city. The place where they now live in, where they've been dislocated to, is filled with neighbors that they don't like, people who worship differently than them, different culture, customs, language, different value system. Everything about the city turns their stomach towards the city. They don't want to be there. And furthermore, this is not their permanent home. This is not where they belong. They're exiles here, away from the place that they ought to be. And so as they're living here in exile, in this other city, everything in them is looking and longing to be in the good land, in the good place where God had promised and prepared for them. Everything in them is sort of yearning to be out of this city and in the good land of Jerusalem. And so this entire experience of living in exile is this experience of sort of groaning and, and longing and yearning to be somewhere else, to, to desire home. Now when the New Testament starts writing about the church of Jesus Christ, people like you and me, people who belong to Jesus and believe in Jesus, the New Testament borrows this language of exile. And it's not to say that we are Israel living in Babylon, but to say, like Israel in Babylon, this is not our home. This is not your permanent home. This is not your final destination. That, in a sense, we too are living like exiles with a heart that is longing and yearning and groaning for our real home. If you belong to Jesus, if you're a Christian, then the, the scriptures say that God has prepared and promised a place for us. And the heart of every believer has this groaning and longing and yearning to be home. This is why Paul in their letter to Philippians will say, our citizenship is in heaven. Hear that again. Our citizenship is in heaven. That while we live in this land and in these cities, truly our first loyalty and our primary loyalty and our first allegiance is to a different kingdom and a different king and a different citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we share this sort of experience of being in exile. That we're not truly at home here because our home is somewhere else. Now the question is, what does that mean for how we live now? How are we, who are citizens of another land, supposed to live in the land we are located in now? How are we, who are citizens of heavenly Jerusalem, as the scriptures say, supposed to live as citizens of the cities of man? How are we, who belong somewhere else, supposed to live in the places that God has put us to live? And that is the exact same question that the people of Israel were wrestling with and struggling with and beginning to ask as they're living in the city of Babylon. They're asking themselves, how are we who are citizens of Jerusalem supposed to live in the city of Babylon? What's our posture supposed to be? What's our, what's our stance supposed to be? How are we supposed to live in this season of our life here? 
And as they were wrestling with that question, as they were sort of sorting that out, as they were figuring out what their response should be as the citizens of God living in a foreign city, there was no shortage of advice, no shortage of answers to that question. In fact, many false prophets rose at that time and told them exactly what their ears were itching to hear. They told them exactly what they wanted to hear. And so in the book of Jeremiah, you find that many false prophets come to them and say, don't worry about this city, because you're going to be out of here real quick. In fact, keep your bags packed. In fact, keep one foot out the door. Don't ever settle down, because soon God is going to bring you back, and you won't have to think about this cursed city anymore. You won't have to care about it. You won't have to worry yourself about it, because quickly you will be going back home. And the people love to hear that. Because everything in them wanted to be out of that city. Everything in them wanted to be back home. And so they longed to hear that good news. The only problem is it was a lie. And into all those false prophets, God sends Jeremiah, a true prophet. And in chapter 29, there's a very famous or well-known verse, if you've grown up in church or been around church, a verse that's put on posters and plaques and mugs. In Jeremiah 29, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And so what God is saying to his people is, listen, when you're living in this foreign city, in this hostile city, in this city surrounded with neighbors that you are not particularly fond of, I want you to know you're not outside of my will or my plan. I want you to know I, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. That, that verse is usually put on a poster with a nice meadow. But I want you to hear the verse was originally said in the middle of skyscrapers and apartment buildings. That verse was said to these people living in exile in the city that I have you exactly where I have you and, and my plans for you are good and, and my purposes for you in this situation is to prosper you and not to harm you but to give you hope in a future. I'm doing good by you. And then he says to them, but I want you to know, I'm not taking you out quickly. In fact, the false prophets had come and said, two years. You got to bite your teeth, grin your teeth for two years, and then you'll be out. And Jeremiah comes along and says, God says 70 years. You're going to be here for a lifetime. You're going to be here your whole life. And so what God requires his people to do is to embrace this tension that while this is not their final home, they are to live here as long as God has them live here and live here as good citizens while he has them here. They're, they're to embrace this tension that while their citizenship is in the city of God, they are to be the best citizens in the cities of man. Right? While their citizenship is in the city of God, they are to live here in the place that God has put them in as the best citizens of that land. They are not to pack their bags. They are not to live with one foot out the door. They are not to live with an eye to a distant place primarily or solely. In fact, listen to what God says to them in verses 5 and 6. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. God says to them, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to settle down. I want you to build homes. Right? It's the difference between building a tent and God saying to them, build a home here. Right? You build a tent because you're going to be quickly on the move. You're going to be ready to get out the first second you can. And yet God is telling them, no, 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 I want you to lay the foundation and pour the concrete and hammer the nails and build a house and live there. Because you're going to be there for a while. I'm not asking you to quickly run. I'm asking you to settle down and establish roots. He says to them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Any of you that help Richard in our community garden project, just that small thing, know if you're going to eat food that you yourself planted, that's going to take time. You don't build a garden if you're planning to run out. You build a garden if you're going to stay, if you're going to be there long enough to tend to it and care for it and watch these things grow and eat the the rewards of your hard work. And so he's telling them, you're going to be here a while. He goes on in verse 6 to say, and I want you to get married and have babies and raise your families. Where? Right here. You're you're not putting your life on pause till you get back to the good place. Right here, I want you to have children and raise families here in the city that I have sent you to exile to. They're not to live with no concern for the city that they're in, just sort of waiting to run out, but they're to live for as long as God has them there as good citizens of that land. They're to settle down and establish roots And be where God wants them to be. So not only are they not packing their bags, not only are they living with one foot out the door, he then goes on to say, and after you've built your homes and planted your gardens and had babies and raised families, look at what he says in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He says, not only are you to build homes and plant gardens and raise babies and families here, but you are also to seek the welfare of the city. This word welfare is this Hebrew word shalom. It's this rich, comprehensive, thick word that writers and commentators and preachers have spent much ink, written volumes about just this one word because it's such a a rich and deep word. It's this word that just at the surface means peace, shalom, peace. Seek the peace of the city. But, But as you look up the definitions, you find that they're a mile long because it's not just peace. It's much more comprehensive than that. Our, our English doesn't know how to go beyond that. The word has many more nuances like happiness and safety and well-being and harmony and everything flowing and fitting together. It's just this picture of total comprehensive good. And, and so it's the idea that everything, seek the shalom of the city, seek the well-being in every quarter, seek the well-being of every sector that, that in education and in medicine and in finance and housing and in economy, in justice, in all these sectors, the city is enjoying peace, well-being, shalom. He says you are to seek the Shalom, the well-being, the peace, the happiness, the safety, the security, the goodness of the city. A city that has shalom, a vision for a city that has shalom is the idea that there's safety in the streets of that city. 
that there is happiness for its citizens, housing for its inhabitants, education for its children, justice in its courts, economic progress and jobs for its people, that the poor and oppressed are being cared for. It's a city, it's a vision for a city, the kind of city you would want to live in, the kind of city people would want to move to. And God is calling his people who are living in Babylon, you are to work and seek to make this city that kind of city. Seek the shalom of the city. I think one of the things that the text would ask us is, in whatever city God has planted you, do you have a vision for that city? Do you have a concern or a thought for that city? Even us, as we're planting Seven Mile Road, is the, the boundary and limit of our vision to build a great community for us, a great church we can participate in, or do we have a vision for a shalom-filled city in which our church fits? Because that's different. Are we trying to build a great church with a great service and great groups, or are we trying to participate with God in building a great city, a city with shalom? in which our church fits, in which our church is a part, in which our church is sent to. If the boundaries of our vision is a good and safe and comfortable and shalom place for us, then we're missing what God would have for us. For in whatever time and whatever season God has you in the city he has you in, you are to seek the shalom of that city. God is commanding his people and he's commanding you that though your citizenship is in heaven, though your citizenship is in heaven, you ought to be the best citizens on earth. Right? Christians sometimes adopt this posture of one foot out the door. And, and it bothers secular people around us because sometimes, as the saying often goes, we are so heavenly bound that we're no earthly good. We're ready for heaven, and we do not care if everything around us burns so long as we get there when it's done. And God instead is calling his people to seek the shalom of the city that God has sent them to. And, and twice in this passage, notice that he says, to the city where I have sent you into exile. Hear that again. They're not there by accident. They didn't end up there because of misfortune or bad luck. They didn't end up there because they don't have enough money to move out or enough resources to get out. They are exactly where they want to be because God says, to the city where I have sent you into exile. In just four verses, he says that twice. Sort of to highlight that. He says that in verse 4. He says it again here in verse 7. To the city that I have sent you to. God sent them there. And God sent you to live exactly where you live. In whatever quadrant of our region you're located, in whatever part of the city or, or, or outside the city, what if you really began to think, hear me, what if you began to think that you live in the city, in the neighborhood, on the block, on the street, in the house, next to those neighbors that you live at, because God has you there. You're not there by accident. You're not there by misfortune. You're not there just as a stepping stone to somewhere else. He has you where he has you 
for the reasons he has you for. God sent them and you into that city. He says, we are to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And then he goes on to say, and when you're there, seeking the shalom, the well-being, the comprehensive total goodness of that city, he says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Did you hear that? While you're there, seeking the shalom of the city where I have sent you to exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now that sounds like no big deal. We've been talking about prayer. Prayer is not difficult. Anybody can pray. So what's the big deal with God saying to them, pray to the Lord on its behalf? I want you to remember again who God is asking to pray and what he's asking them to pray for. He is asking the people of Israel to pray on behalf of the city of Babylon. The city that just had plundered their city and destroyed Jerusalem and carried them as captives and enemies into their city. And they are to sit there and live there and pray to the Lord for the shalom and blessing of this foreign, hostile city filled with neighbors they are not fond of. And they are to plead to the Lord and pray to the Lord on its behalf. You think about that. Their natural disposition would have been to hate that city, to abhor that city, to hate these neighbors and everyone around them to see them as foreign and different and hostile and threatening and averse to us. And yet God is saying to them, I want you to pray. If, hear this, if they were going to pray a prayer for Babylon, it would have sounded like Psalm 137. If you've got a Bible, turn it to Psalm 137, or I think they'll beam it on the screen. In Psalm 137, there's a prayer of what Israel would have likely felt, the angst of their heart while they're sitting in the city of Babylon. Let me just read it for you. You can hear it with me. This is what they would have naturally prayed. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So it's this expression of the people of Israel, and they're living in this foreign city. They're by its streams, and everything in them is frustrated, and their, their captors are telling them, sing one of the songs, and they're asking themselves, how can we sing in this foreign land? Verse 4, how should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Then they begin to think about Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. So he's saying, let, let, if I forget Jerusalem, let my right hand just fall limp and be paralyzed. Then he goes on to say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Let this happen to me if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem as my highest joy. And then he prays in the anguish of his soul. He says, remember, O Lord, the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundation. So he's calling on the Lord saying, remember how these people came into our city and laid the whole city bare, ruined the whole thing down to its foundations. He goes on in verse 8 and 9 and says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. All right, the Bible is a very raw and unfiltered book. And it captures 
what their emotions would have been. Do you get it? I'm, I'm, not, I'm saying these people would have every reason to pray, Lord, visit them with judgment as they treated us. And as they took our little ones and destroyed them, destroyed their little ones, it would have been natural for the disposition of their heart that every word they speak about the city of Babylon to be curses and disdain and full of hatred and full of fear and full of anger for that city. And it's to them that God says, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. They were not to pray Psalm 137. They were instead to pray Psalm 122. Turn there for a second. Psalm 122 is the passage we used in our call to worship this morning. This would have been a prayer that they had grown up praying. This would have been a prayer they had prayed many times for their beloved city, Jerusalem. Hear it with me. Psalm 122 is, is a pilgrim who's being called from the villages with all the other travelers to go up to the city of God in Jerusalem. And you're going to hear his joy at just the prospect of being able to go to God's house with all of his brothers and sisters. He says this, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then it's almost like he zoomed there quickly. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And as he's standing in Jerusalem, he swells up with pride for the city that he loves. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. So it's this city, it's this holy city, it's this royal city where the king resides and all of God's people. And then he prays this in verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What's that word? Shalom. Welfare. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. Pray for the welfare of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He goes on to say, may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here's a prayer that every Jew would have prayed their whole life. Going to God's house, going to the city, saying, peace be to this city. Peace for the sake of all who live here. Peace for the sake of the glory of God to be known here. Peace be upon this city. And now here's the exchange that's happening. God is telling his people who are in exile in Babylon to pray this prayer for Babylon. To pray this prayer for the city that God sent them to. To pray this not just for Jerusalem, but now to begin to pray this prayer for ba Babylon. And I think one of the things the text would begin to ask us is, what marks your speech when you speak about the city and the place that God has called you to live in and sent you to exile in? When you and I, and I, I say this to my soul first, when you hear of another report of crime in our city, when you turn on the news and hear again of the failing schools, when you hear of the corruption and the poverty and the problems, what speech comes out. Do those things drive you to your knees to beg God for the shalom of the city that you have been called to? Or does your mouth fly 
with grumbles and frustrations and cursings and disdain and hatred for the whole thing. Let the whole thing burn. As long as me and my family and the people that I care about are zoomed to heaven when we're done. What marks who we are and how we are towards this city? When you look back in the scriptures and consider the people of God towards cities, are we like Abraham? If you remember or have heard in the story of Genesis, how he's looking on this city Sodom, this wicked city, this city known for its depravity, sexually immoral in every kind of way, just a wicked city. And yet there is Abraham pleading with God, God for the sake of 50 people's spirit, for the sake of 45 spirit. And he bargains God down to, if there's five people there who are decent, spare that city, O oh God. Or you think of righteous Jesus, who walks into the city of Jerusalem filled with people who are rebelling against God and against him. And it says he looked on Jerusalem and he wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Or do we look more like the prophet Jonah, who we spent a summer last time talking about? who hated the city of Nineveh and all its wicked people, and who sat on the outskirts of the city and watched and waited for it to burn down, who could not care less because he was on his way out. How do we relate to the city? I want us to hear these houses we live nearby, these apartments that we live next to, these cars we drive alongside, these streets we walk and drive by, they are filled with human beings for whom going to hell would be every bit as tragic as if you were to go there yourself. For whom, whose children, it would be every bit as tragic for them to go to hell as if your children were going to go to hell. For whom safety and good education and justice and prosperity and comfort and health matter to them every bit as much as it matters for you or your children, or me, or my children. And God says to this people who is in exile, seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you to exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Last verse. And he says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For if it goes well with the city that you live in, you know who that benefits? You who live there. Seek the shalom of the city where I've sent you into exile, for in its shalom, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray for the blessing of the city, because if the city is blessed, you are blessed. Pray selfishly for your blessing, and so the city around you might be blessed, that you might be blessed. Listen, when you live like you've got one foot out the door, there's nothing in you that needs to pray. When you've got your bags packed and you've got no commitment to anyone around you, wherever you live, you've got no reason to pray because you're on your way out. But if you do as God says and build homes and plant gardens and raise babies and families, then it produces in you a desperate need that the city would do well because you've put your lock in with the city. You're stuck here too. And so you want this city to do well so that it might go well for you. At the, at the prospect of living in Philadelphia and staying in the city for me and my family, it's, it's changed how I pray about the city. 
You know, I need good schools. You know why? I got two kids. I, I've got stock in this thing. I'm begging God now for good teachers and good administrators and good classes and good education because if there's welfare shalom in the city, there's shalom for me. For my children will be blessed in the blessing of the city. I beg God with you, we pray for safety, and we ought to, for police officers and safety in our streets because if the city's safe, you know who it benefits? Me and my family as we walk down the street and drive down the street. We ought to pray for racial equality and harmony in our city so that there wouldn't be a street, a street in our city where a person of any race could not freely walk. Because if that blesses the city, we're blessed by it. We have to pray for good leaders and good politicians to rule with wisdom. We have to pray for good judges and justice in our courts. We have to pray for the poor and the oppressed. We ought to pray for the comprehensive whole well-being of the cities that God has called us to. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And if we build homes and plant gardens and have babies and raise families, and we seek the welfare of the city that God has sent us into exile to, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, in its welfare, we will find our welfare. I want you to hear, even the city of Philadelphia has a prayer, if you will pray. Even this city has a prayer, if you will pray. And pray for the shalom of this city and the cities that you live in. And I, and I want to end by saying this. All of this points us to and is a picture of the good news that's at the very heart of our faith. Israel was called to do what? To be in exile, be sent to a place that is foreign to them so that they might do good for those around them. Who's that a picture of? You've been called and sent to a place, some of you to the ends of the earth, and sent to this crummy place for the good of all those around you. Who's that a picture of? But the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of heaven, the citizen of heaven, of the city of God, sent to the cities of man to bring about shalom, to bring about peace. In fact, do you know that Ephesians says he himself is our peace? That's saying that Jesus is shalom. That what the cities need is shalom, that what the cities need is Jesus. He is our peace, Ephesians says, who has come to bring those who are far and those who are near to God. This one sent from heaven came down, not just to pray for peace, but in himself and in his work to bring about the peace that we so desperately needed. So when we pray, we are pleading on the person and work of Jesus who is himself the peace and the shalom that our city needs. Only for the sake of the welfare of the cities of man, it cost Jesus his own life. He sought the shalom of the city to the point that they drove him out of the city, near the garbage dumps, and killed him there. That was the cost of bringing shalom to you and to me. Jesus came to a hostile place to neighbors who looked nothing like him and his father. And he gave his life being crucified and killed in the garbage dumps outside the city for the sake of the inhabitants of the city. And we, friends, 
have been called to that mission. So I'd ask you to consider your hearts this morning. I'd ask the Spirit to work on your hearts as He is working on mine, to bring instruction, to bring correction, to bring, to bring change as is needed. Examine your hearts. How do you think about the city that God has called you to? If, if you're tempted to think, God doesn't care about that stuff, as long as I focus on really spiritual things, that's a lie. Spiritual things is not just this invisible thing. Spiritual things is real things, and God cares about the real city, and God cares that you care about the real city. He cares about it, so you ought to as well. It matters to Him what your disposition is to His world, to His cities, and to the people who live there. That matters to God. That is a barometer of your own heart and relationship with the Lord. And then consider how you think about the city. Some of us love the city and put all our hope in the cities of man. We're wrong. But some of us disdain the city. And we're so thought about the cities of God that we have no thought for the cities of man. We're wrong. Don't just use the city. Don't, don't just disdain the city or hate the city or put all your hope in the city. Be citizens of heaven, which forces you to be the best citizens on earth. And so... Build homes and plant gardens and have babies and raise families and seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would help us as a church to not drift into maintenance mode, to not coast, to not kick up our feet and be satisfied and settled with what you have done, but press on for you have more and greater things to do here. Don't let us stand on the sideline and watch as you do it through others who will be faithful, but use us who are faithless and make us faithful that we might be the very thing that you want to use to change this place around us. Lord, we pray for the city of Philadelphia. We pray for the shalom of this city. We pray for the cities around us that each of us live in and represent and the shalom there. We pray that you would remind us that you have sent us as in exile, as it were, to the very places you want us to be in. And so we pray now this morning together as a church for Philadelphia and its shalom. We pray for its well-being. We pray for safety in its streets. We pray for good education for its children, justice in its courts, good leaders who are wise and just and rule fairly and well for the good of all in this city. We pray for jobs and economy, for the whole well-being of the city. We pray for those who are victims, who are abused, who are poor, that they would be taken care of by the church of Jesus Christ and the people of this city. We pray for brotherly love to exist among the people of this city and racial reconciliation and harmony and unity in the city. We pray that this city would experience shalom and well-being and be the kind of place we want to live in and people would want to move too. We pray that you would rid the city of the systems 
and things that Satan has been working for decades to construct. Rid the city of human trafficking and prostitution. Rid the city of violent gangs and mobs. Rid the city of corrupt leaders. Rid the city of all that is displeasing and harmful to its people. And use us as agents to spread the peace that comes from Jesus Christ. Let Jesus be known in the homes of every man, woman, and child of this city. Plant many churches in this city so that the influence and witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be known on every block here. Lord, this morning we even pray for the neighbors who live around this building. Some of them don't even know, though we've been here for years, that Seven Mile Road Church exists. Some of them at best have seen us fill up a parking lot on Sundays and leave. Where we have been negligent, where we have been sinful, where we have been insular, forgive and pardon and transform and change. And set us to this good work that many around us would come to know the Lord. Let us be a light set up on a hill, a light in darkness, pointing people to Christ. Come help us, grow us, mature us, change us, and Holy Spirit, do more than we know to ask. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.